Well, good morning, everyone. And good morning to all those of you who are what, uh, participating. I always want to be careful, participating online at home. Uh, a shout out to Donna Holloman, who's the first person ever to do a church announcement while petting her dog. That was a dog, right? Yeah, okay, I, thought, I think so, right? So we are in a series right now called Let's Get Real. And it's a series where we get the opportunity to speak into truths and realities that are relevant to us in our current cultural climate that we don't often get to touch on. So it's kind of a neat opportunity. And I felt the nudge this time around to talk about the reality of, of church brokenness. And when I say church brokenness, I, I don't mean Willoughby Church. That would get way too vulnerable. I mean the, the historic global capital C church. Um, I've been engaged in a few, re um, few materials recently that have kind of tipped me off to this that highlight the abuse of power within churches. I've been reading a book called A Church Called Tov, and Tov means good in Hebrew, uh, by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger, uh, which looks into the conversation of abuse within churches and specifically comes out of their own experience at Willow Creek back in the day with all the stuff that happened with Bill Hybels. I've also been listening to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Many of you maybe have heard of it or are listening to it, which focuses on uh, the ministries of Mark Driscoll and the abuse of power that happened there. On top of that, last week was Abuse Awareness Sunday, uh, which we mentioned briefly, and this past Thursday was the first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation here in Canada, a day to remember our First Nations neighbors who have also been victims of the abuse of power. And what I have noticed, paying attention ever so often, ever so slightly, to the media of the last, you know, five to ten years, is that the main reasons why the church here in Canada often ends up on global TV or CBC, apart from COVID, is often because of these kinds of situations where power has been abused. And this is the kind of thing that affects all of us. I recently had a fellow believer, a member of this church, say to me, you know, I really struggle with evangelism, with sharing my faith, because the church has such a bad rep right now. It's got a bad reputation right now. Danny and I, I, I get this, Danny and I have a neighbor that lives in the same condo complex as us, and he, he knows we're pastors, but he's very, very open with us about how much he hates religion for this very reason. Many of us know people who have left the church or whose faith has been significantly challenged because of these kinds of discoveries, and we are left constantly wondering, where is Jesus in this mess? Where is Jesus in this brokenness? Now, it is not my intention this morning to list all of the atrocities and errors and mistakes that the church has made and committed throughout history, but I wondered if it might be helpful to acknowledge this reality and to speak in general terms about the church's brokenness and how we are meant to respond. What do we do? How are we meant to think when we find out or discover or are told that the church has made mistakes, sometimes really terrible ones that affect hundreds, maybe thousands of people's lives? So to give us a foundation for this morning, I'm going to be reading from a few different places, okay? So just a heads up, there's going to be three, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, okay? There's going to be three of those. I'm going to be reading a few different scripture passages, and those three scripture passages are going to give us the framework for the message this morning, Okay? So the first is from 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. If you want to grab a Bible, 2 Corinthians, it's after 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 
verses 8 through 10. Listen to the word of the Lord. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, in this situation, um, in 2 Corinthians, Paul has already sent a letter. Okay, So we have 1 Corinthians, and then we have 2 Corinthians. But in between, Paul has sent them a letter, a a letter that we don't have. Um, We only know of it because of this passage. And it was a letter that, based on Paul's comments here, was likely a little bit feisty. At first, he regretted it because evidently it caused them some hurt. It caused the church some hurt. But when he saw the fruit from it, that it actually led them to a a sort of godly sorrow and then to repentance, he was grateful that he did it. He was grateful that he took that risk. And it struck me when I read that passage that this is something that Scripture has the ability to do for us. This life-giving breath of the Word of God is able to bring us to a sort of godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. A sorrow, and this is the kind of sorrow that Paul's talking about, a sorrow that's not focused on worldly things, on trivial things, selfish things, my new car has a scratch kind of things, but things that actually connect us to the heartbeat of God. Things like when we're faced with mistakes that the church has made in the past. That should solicit a kind of godly sorrow when we know that it's those mistakes that have tragically hurt the reputation, not of us, but of the God that we serve. Because if we don't have sorrow for those things, when we just sort of push them under the rug and pretend that it didn't actually happen or that we didn't have anything to do with it, it doesn't have anything to do with us, you know, to save our own reputation and our own image, well, what does that do for the reputation of God? I know that that communal identity and language can be a bit tough for us sometimes, but here's the thing. If we've been adopted into the family of God, that means that we've been adopted not only into the history of Israel, which at times is pretty bad, but also the history of the entire church since its inception. We have a massive family tree. You know, we each have our own biological families and our own biological ancestral trees. But even more than that, Christ has called us into this greater spiritual family with a massive ancestral tree. It's part of our collective history. So yes, we, we mourn and we ache and we lament and we can sometimes hate the decisions that our spiritual great aunts and uncles decided to do that we don't often understand. We can lament that. It's important for us to just say that. And it should sadden us that as a result of those decisions, the common narrative in our society is that religion is oppressive. As Mike Goeen puts it, religion only seeks to dominate. This is what's in the cultural narrative, right? Religion is something that seeks to dominate, to homogenize, to eliminate freedom and diversity. That's the kind of reputation that it has. And so it's appropriate for us 
to express godly sorrow that at times this has been the reality. Reverend Dr. Ray Aldred, who's a professor at the Vancouver School of Theology in the Indigenous Studies Department and is First Nations himself, he shared this in a sermon at First Baptist, where my husband works, um, that there was a desire in First Nations history here in Canada, on the part of the government and the church, to eradicate the Indigenous identity. I'm going to say that again. It was a desire on the part of the government and the church to eradicate the Indigenous identity. The idea, he said, was that you could kill the savage and save the child. So you could strip them of all identity, spirituality, family, culture, language, and yet, and somehow still end up with a human, right? Because for, from their vantage point, actually, and similar to what Ed shared about the Samaritan from last week, their history was all wrong. Their spirituality was all wrong. Their thinking was all wrong. And this narrative actually looks very similar to that beaten stranger who was on the side of the road who just had the Levite and the priest pass by. It's easy to do if we don't feel like that's our problem to deal with or to fix, if it's not our mess. But if we hope to have, as Ed put it last week, an eye for the broken, this needs to start with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, says Paul, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. See, our own salvation starts with a godly sorrow. Our own salvation starts with a godly sorrow of recognizing how messy we are. Why should that not be the posture for everything else? We're called to be witnesses to this salvation, but we are not perfect witnesses. Not even close. And it's appropriate, it's necessary for us, for our hearts to break for the brokenness that we still experience, not just in ourselves, but also in history. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because for centuries they'd been too short-sighted and too focused on their own agendas to see him. That's the kind of thing where we can look at, we can look in that and say, well, how could they be so blind? But are we exempt from the same temptation? If anything, the mistakes of the past, and this is what I'm trying to get at, the mistakes of the past should humble us and bring us to our knees, begging that the Lord would guide us and sanctify us and lead us into truth so that we can mature beyond these mistakes. Which is what leads me to the second passage for today. Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, earlier in the letter, Paul says something similar. He writes this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What am I trying to say here? That this salvation that we've received 
that comes from our own repentance and sorrow for our own brokenness, this salvation is something that we are called to work out, to work out with fear and trembling. That it, It's a work that's being done continuously in us. In other words, it's not finished. It's not done. We're not there yet. It's what we call sanctification. We are being sanctified. We are, Lord willing, becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more being formed and transformed into his image, becoming more and more into his likeness as we surrender to his Holy Spirit's transforming work within us. So how how we respond to this sanctifying work, knowing that this work is being done in us, how we respond to that is significant. When someone asks you, how can you be a Christian when the church has done so much harm? This is a question that points to the brokenness that we still live in and our great need for sanctification. It points to how much we still need Jesus. Jesus didn't do those things. We did. And just because people proclaim to do things in his name doesn't mean that they're actually being led by him. When pride and money and fame and one's own importance are more essential than Jesus, the blinders come on and we become walking, talking idolaters. That's very easy for us to fall into, trying to enhance our own reputation rather than God's. That's the first sign. That's the first sign to look for, actually of when we are being tempted away from the Holy Spirit's transforming work within us, when we're trying to enhance our own reputation rather than God's. We are not above this. The enemy will pick at us and prod us just as much as anyone else to find our greed in something else rather than Jesus. To find, I should say, to find our trust in greed rather than in Jesus. To find our comfort in power rather than in Jesus. To find our authority in ourselves rather than in Jesus. To find our worth in fame and being the best rather than in Jesus. See, part, part of what's so difficult in this, I think, part of what makes it hurt so much, is that we expect better of ourselves. We expect the church to be better That's what hurts so bad. We think we need to be better. We think we should be better. For goodness sake, we have a whole New Testament telling us, you're the hope of the world. You're salt and light. You're the identity, the walking identity of Jesus. You're the chosen people of God. But you know, there's a reason why we still have this. There's a reason why it was written down. Because evidently we need the reminders. Evidently the early church needed to be reminded that just because they'd received the Holy Spirit didn't mean they were all good now. As if they didn't have to grow and mature and discern through some really tough things. The work of sanctification, as Paul puts it in Philippians, is ongoing. We aren't meant to constantly focus on how we should be better but on how desperately we still need Jesus. See, after 2,000 years, we're still trying to figure it out. We're still trying to figure out how to follow him. And that's okay to say. 
We don't have it all together. And in fact, if you think you have it all together and you always know the perfect thing to say, you can probably leave. Because this is a house for the broken. This is a house for people who know that they need grace. For people who know that they've messed up. For people who know that they can only be called good because of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that makes us different. If we have it all good and put together, why do we need Jesus? If we're innocent, why did he die? We live in a broken world that needs Jesus desperately. And the church is not exempt from that. We're just the ones who know the truth and can point the world to him. We confess every Sunday that we mess up. And it keeps us recognizing that we can't do this by ourselves. And yes, it keeps us vulnerable, and we don't often like that. In the book, A Church Called Tove, which I mentioned earlier, Scott McKnight and his daughter highlight a situation that took place at a Presbyterian church a number of years ago down in Kentucky, where one of their pastors, one of those tough situations, um, a fellow named Brad Waller, was accused of abuse of power against minors. Now, the senior minister, Robert Cunningham, who hadn't even been there during the time of when the events actually took place, but he responded immediately by notifying pastors, elders, police, hiring an investigation, apologizing publicly, specifically to the victims, and he wrote this, which I thought was rather telling. He says this, in this scenario, we are relinquishing control over the investigation and inviting any and all findings and corrections. This will be an institutionally vulnerable process. Essentially, we're inviting an independent sexual abuse audit of our church, but we want everyone to know that TCPC, which is their church, wants to hide nothing. That is not to say that mistakes were not made, only that if they were made, we don't want to hide them. Instead, and this is the key phrase, this is the key line, instead, we want the opportunity to apologize and repent in any way that we need to. Also, we want to be better equipped, both in policies and training, to make every effort to prevent this from happening again. Cunningham, as the authors put it, wanted to do everything he could to make things right. To be as transparent as possible, to be as vulnerable as possible. <clears throat> and to seek healing for all of the victims. And notice in that quote how collective the language is. In other words, he's implying that this burden is on all of us. And for that reason, he wanted the opportunity to apologize and repent in any ways that they could. He saw it as an opportunity, not a shaming, not a guilt trip. This is an opportunity for us to be vulnerable and to say, I'm sorry. An opportunity to be vulnerable and to express vulnerability. And I, I use that example because these kinds of situations are going to keep coming up. The church is going to continue to mess up until Jesus comes back again. 
Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, please. And this is no different than any other institution. Cases of abuse happen everywhere where human beings roam and exist. However, it's the way that the church responds to these situations that makes us stand out. How we handle conflict and tension, how we manage past hurts, how we address and acknowledge our mistakes, and yes, how we lead with vulnerability, with godly sorrow, knowing our own need for sanctification. As Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8, you who is without sin, go ahead, be the first to throw a stone. Each and every one of us is capable of making grave mistakes. And the more that we recognize our own brokenness, the more we'll desire for God's Spirit to fill us so that we can operate less and less within ourselves and our own autonomy and more and more in His power and Holy Spirit. Because when you speak gospel truth to the brokenhearted out of your own brokenness, out of your own broken vessel that's been saved by grace and filled by the Holy Spirit and is operating in His power and authority, when you've surrendered to His Spirit within you, then you don't need to be afraid of what people think. In fact, that fear ceases to exist because it's not about you. You don't even think about yourselves in that moment. Because your fear isn't there. Your doubt isn't there. That's what, that's what sanctification means. We lose more and more of ourselves and our own autonomy and we depend more and more on that spirit within us which drives us and transforms us. So yes, we grieve, we hurt, we lament, we ache, and we carry those burdens with us from the past particularly, but then we lay them at the cross and we pray ardently individually and collectively, that Jesus would sanctify us and help us to love the broken. Because in his power and by his authority, despite the failures, despite whatever failures we encounter, we are yet called to be a gift to the world. Which leads us to the last passage, 1 Peter 2, 9-10. to is going to be familiar to many of you. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, I have to admit, after reading, or after sitting in our brokenness for a while, it's kind of hard to read that passage. But, but this is the grace and the mercy of God. That he would look down on us. That he would come down to us. And that he would invite us to be his chosen people. That he would invite us to be a holy priesthood. That he would do and continue to do a good work in us. 
This is who you are so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. You are God's special possession so that you can declare his praises. Another way of putting this is that you can make public, you can demonstrate his goodness. In 2 Corinthians, Paul calls us ambassadors of Christ, as if God were making his appeal to the world through us. So it's as if God is using us to enhance his own reputation, as if God has chosen that we would be the means by which the world would come to know how good he really is. You know, it's, it's, it's a miracle that the church even still exists, let alone for us to be called his ambassadors, for us to be the people through whom he wants the world to know who he is. But you know what all that means? It means that in Christ, no matter how dark a situation is, light can come from it. It means that no matter how many ashes there are, beauty can arise from it. Because that's what he does. That's what he's good at. That's what he's about. Every morning when you wake up by his mercy, you have the opportunity, we have the opportunity to create goodness out of the goodness that we've received. To be vulnerable before him and before others. To repent in godly sorrow and to surrender ourselves to his mercy and to ask that he would continue that good work within us so that our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our loved ones, everyone around us can know who Jesus really is. This is the good news for us. In the face of historical and ongoing failures that continue to plague us, that he is and is still making something of us. And as he promised us, that he will be with us until the very end of the age. Thank God. So in closing, to circle back to that initial question, where is Jesus in all of this mess? Where is he in all of this brokenness? Where was he when these leaders abused their power? Where was he when these vulnerable women were taken advantage of, when these children were stripped of their identities? Where was he? He was here. For every mistake, for every abuse of power, for every word of gossip or malice or shame, for every attempt to enhance our own reputation rather than God's, Jesus was absorbing all of it onto himself. He has done what we could never do, and he has taken the world's brokenness onto himself. And he calls us now to himself. Because although abuse of power continues to happen, he is now our source and our hope for healing in the midst of it. 
Let's pray. Living God, as we sang earlier, this is our Father's world. Oh, let us not forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, you are the ruler yet. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.